How many years have flown by and we seem to end up in the same place as we were the year before? If we want to grow in our relationship with God, there's one thing we can do in 2024 that will make more difference than anything else. Read the Bible. I'll be reading the Bible this year, and I invite you to read it with me in a Bible reading program called Reading the Bible Lands. It includes Bible Lands photos, videos, and devotionals, and live Zoom calls with me. Find out more at readingthebiblelands.com. This episode of Live the Bible is brought to you by Walking the Bible Lands. If you haven't been to Israel yet, or you'd like to relive your tour, these on-site videos are the next best thing to being there. Check it out at walkingthebiblelands.com. Hello, welcome to Live the Bible. My name is Wayne Stiles, and this is the podcast that helps you connect the Bible to your daily life. The scriptures give us a great model to pattern our life after, and the best among all the examples? Well, of course, it's Jesus. We see in our Lord not only the type of person we want to be, but we see the path toward that goal. Jesus lived as the perfect example of intentional growth and balance. Last week we saw how Jesus grew intellectually and physically, and in today's podcast, We're turning again to one verse in Luke chapter 2 to see how he grew spiritually and socially, and how we can do the same. I'll be back in a bit, but for now, let's get right into this week's podcast. What is the purpose for your life? That's a big question. It's a pretty deep question. And it's sort of a baited question in this context because we could easily, you know, all kind of go around and be real spiritual, asking what's the purpose of your life here in this context in church. That's an easy answer because God's in there somewhere, definitely. But let's say instead of asking that question for you to answer, we ask that question in a way that someone follows you around this week and watches your life. What is the purpose of your life? Would they, when they observed how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you use your words, it's a pretty convicting mental exercise, isn't it? I'm not sure I would want somebody following me around. If there were moments, I'd like to go lock them in the closet for a few minutes and then bring them back out and let them follow because uh, we, are, we are projects, aren't we? We, are not just, uh, we? we don't just have a purpose in life. We have the purpose of God sanctifying us and making us more and more like his son. I like the way the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Man's chief end, our purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Which, again, is wonderful, but how in the world do you do that? Sounds great, but how do you do that? Well, let's talk a little about that and turn, if you would, in your Bible to Luke chapter 2 and Mark chapter 12. Open both of those up, if you would. Luke 2 and Mark 12. I think one of our greatest challenges is trying to find balance in the Christian life. It is, um, it's a constant effort. If you think about the person on a tightrope, it's a beautiful metaphor. A person on a tightrope never gets to the point where they're walking along and then all of a sudden, hey, I got balance, and they just walk, keep walking you know, fast. It's always slow. It's always very calculated. They've got that big, long pole that helps assist in the balance. It is a job. Balance is never something that we just have. It's something we are always striving to keep or to find. One person, I think it was Dr. Hanna, Dr. John Hanna, said balance is like a pendulum. It's that brief moment in the middle when you're swinging from one extreme to the other. That's insightful. I think part part of our pursuit of balance contains the realization that We never find it. Even Jesus, if you think about it, was exhausted at times. 
And this is, this is the man, Jesus, who somehow fi- found the time to get it all done. He had the same 24 hours that we have, and yet at the end of his life, as he prayed uh, to the Father, he said, I have completed the work that you have given me to do. Wouldn't it be great to be able to pray that at the end of life and to know that it was true? I have completed the work that you have given me to do. Somehow, Jesus found the time to get it all done. Well, we're looking at Luke chapter 2. Look down at the very end of Luke 2. Probably got to flip three pages to find it. Luke writes long chapters. Luke 2.52. We started last week our short little series on growing like Jesus. And Luke 2.52 is sort of the fulcrum of the, uh, our time. It says, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Again, looking at the details of this verse is fascinating because we see that Jesus grew as a complete person. He grew in, in four areas, we're told here, and we're told that he kept increasing. He continued growing in wisdom, that's intellectually, in stature, that's physically, in favor with God, that's spiritually, and in favor with men or people, that's socially. Spiritually, physically, socially, and um, whatever the other one was. (laughs) Intellectually. (laughs) What a one to forget. Uh, intellectually. <laughs> Jesus somehow did it. And we're, we looked last time at wisdom and stature, or growing intellectually and physically. And today, we're going to look at growing in favor with God and people. That is, growing spiritually and socially. Kind of fascinating to think about that Jesus grew in these areas. Um, so, you've also got Mark 12 open. So turn to Mark chapter 12. And we'll look at a few passages today, not just one or two. So be ye prepared to flip around a little bit. Mark chapter 12, the context of this, you may remember, is when Jesus is teaching in the temple. Really, he's debating, and and he teaches in the context of debating these uh, religious leaders who come up to him and try to trap him. And Mark chapter 12, look down at verse 28. In verse 28, a scribe kind of tosses Jesus a live grenade to see how he's going to respond to it. And look at what happens. Verse 28, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Interesting, Jesus' use of uh, singular and plural, commandment, these. In other words, he's saying that these represent one commandment, that is ultimately to love. And he says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. And then he says the second is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. To have this love for God and this love for people, and then he refers to it as a commandment. How does that work? How does that work? It's fascinating when we look at the details of it. But before we get into the details of it, look at just the broad, a broad observation about this. Uh, What's the most important commandment? In other words, what's the one that you better do if you don't do any others? What's the one that is the one that you want to make sure you do? Jesus says it is to love God and love people. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19. Deuteronomy 6 is that passage that says, Love the Lord your God. It's the first one mentioned. It is sort of the, uh, the statement of faith, you might say, the basic fundamental truth of Judaism today. Uh, and, uh, of course, back then, Jesus also said this is the, the commandment that is most important. And the, fundament, the fundamental truth that God is one, that he is one God, is followed by the fundamental command that we should love God 
and we should love God with all of who we are. And we see the four areas that Jesus mentioned, or I should say that Luke mentioned that Jesus grew in. We see each of these represented in Jesus' statement here about how we love God. Did you notice them as we read them? Look at it again. Here in verse 30, it says that uh, we are to love the Lord your God with all of the heart and with all your soul, so there's spiritually, with all your mind, there's intellectually, with all your strength, there is physically. The second is like it, like this, you shall love your neighbors yourself, there's socially. So our growing as, as balanced people is from the hub of loving God. In other words, how do we love God? How do we fulfill our purpose in life to love God, or as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, to glorify God, to enjoy him forever? We love him, and then love is sort of the hub or the sprocket. It's sort of the, uh, the manifold, as it were, and all these other things come out of it, and they're all rooted into it. There's so many wonderful metaphors when you think about it, that love, loving God, is expressed in these four areas intellectually, physically, socially, and spiritually. Jesus grew that way. Jesus says that the Scripture commands that we grow the same way. Jesus said this, and you don't have to turn there, but the Apostle Paul also said this. So just listen as I read for you from Romans chapter 12. Very familiar passage, no doubt. In fact, I think we read it from it last week. But think of it in the context of growing in these four areas. See if you can hear the four areas as I read this passage to you. From Romans 12, right at the beginning. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect, for through the grace of God given to me, I say to every one of you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Did you hear all four in there? They were there. They were there. Present your bodies. That's physically. Do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's intellectually. Um, and then he also says, which is your spiritual service of worship? That's spiritual. And then social is there at the end. There, as we have many members in one body, so we all are members of one another. We see this theme, I guess my point in showing this over and over, is we see this theme throughout the scriptures. It, it's not just Luke 2.52. We see this all throughout the scriptures, that we are to grow in these areas and that we, that we love God. We express our love for God by growing and by, by developing and using the, all these areas for his glory. Now, let's be honest. Don't raise your hand, and uh, I won't raise mine either. But there's a lot of believers today who are sort of suffering from uh, lack of a better way to phrase it, would be kind of the spiritual blahs, just kind of ho-hum Christianity, especially true for those of us who have been Christians for a long time. You know, we know the routine, we go through the motions, we know all the words to the songs or hymns, even better. We've heard our pastor preach the same message so many times we can finish his jokes. We know all the cliches to make it through a prayer meeting. I mean, we know just what to say. We know all the shibboleths to get across the Jordan River. But there's no real excitement in the Christian life. Outside, it's praise the Lord. But inside, it's cold mashed potatoes. The spiritual blahs. Why is that? I think it's because we often confuse the spiritual life with religious activities. Or will confuse our love for the Lord with our service for the Lord. Remember, this was the problem that the church of Ephesus had. We looked at some time ago in Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus said, you have lost your first love. 
You're great in your doctrine. You're great in your deeds. But your devotion is gone. And you need to get it back. You need to repent. Each of us is born with a God-shaped vacuum in our lives. And if you think about it, a God-shaped vacuum is huge. I mean, because God's huge. God is infinite. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes even refers to it as God has set eternity in our hearts. Nothing fills eternity but, but something that is eternal or infinite. Only God can fill that part of our lives. But we feel that vacuum. And think about that. It's a wonderful metaphor. A vacuum must be uh, resolved. It must be resolved. You've got to have something in that vacuum, or it's constantly pulling. There's got to be a, a satisfaction to that. You could think of another metaphor as a hunger. We've got a hunger, and nothing satisfies hunger but food. I mean, you're going to be hungry until you eat. We're going to have that vacuum spiritually until God is there. And we'll try to fill that, vac that vacuum with other things. The world offers lots of things. Remember, Jesus spoke to the woman at the well and said that anyone that drinks of this water will thirst again. He used that as a metaphor of the spiritual life. He says, but drink the water that I give you, you'll be fully satisfied. He was talking about that vacuum that we have in our lives. And even in the Christian life, if we try to fill that, that vacuum with anything other than God, even if it's church stuff, we'll still feel that emptiness inside. Only God can fill that vacuum. Only a love for God and a growing relationship with God can fill that vacuum, can give you the peace that passes understanding in spite of what's going on in your life. And I don't know, if you, if you have those feelings uh, in your life, and, and sometimes I guess we all do, there are those days and those moments where we're striving to fill that vacuum in our hearts with anything other than Jesus Christ. It's a natural thing for us, uh, part of our fallen nature, I should say. It's why the Apostle John would write in his first epistle, little children, guard yourself from idols. We will grab at anything that will try to give that satisfaction. If you've been uh, up to Washington, D.C., I hope that you've seen the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. It's right there by the uh, Lincoln Memorial. Beautiful uh, wall, big, big black wall. It starts off real small, and then it kind of gets bigger and bigger and into this corner. It's uh, very beautifully done. And in it are etched more than 58,000 Americans who died in the war. Since its opening back in 1982, of course, millions of people have uh, filed past it in red. Some visitors will walk real slowly and just kind of keep walking, and others will stop and, you know, find a particular name of a loved one, uh, maybe a husband or a father, a fellow soldier. But I, I read the New York Times said that there are 11 unnamed that they didn't name, but there are three specific men, Robert Bedker, Willie, Willard Craig, and Daryl Losh. These are three whose names are on there, but they, it was a mistake. They didn't die. And so these guys can like walk up there and see their names on the wall, and they have. <laughs> They've actually requested they be removed, but how do you remove something that's chiseled in granite? It's kind of uh, permanent. But I read that and thought, you know, this is sort of a, an interesting description of the Christian life. We are considered dead, but we're alive. We're considered dead, but we're alive. The Apostle Paul wrote in his first epistle, and he said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians, Paul wrote. And you can sort of derive a nice definition of the Christian life from what Paul said there. And here it is. The Christian life is the life of Christ, reproduced in the life of a believer. That's the first part of it. But just think about that for a second. The Christian life is the life of Christ. Paul said, 
I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. So here's that definition again. I mean, it's not something you need to write down, but just ponder it. The Christian life is the life of Christ reproduced in the life of a believer by the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience to the Word of God. That's the Christian life. Our spiritual life begins with a personal faith in Jesus, but it doesn't stop there. You're in Mark 12. If you would, turn back to Mark 1. Mark chapter 1. At the outset of Jesus' ministry, his compassion and his power to heal uh, quickly spread, and he became very popular. And you can imagine to have a physical disease healed simply by the touch of this man. They would be coming in droves, and they did come in droves. Mark chapter 1 tells about when they came to Capernaum, came to Peter's house, and they thronged Peter's house. And uh, we're in Mark chapter 1. Look down at verse 33. Mark 1, verse 33. Go ahead and look at 32. When evening came after sun had set, they, became, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. Everyone is looking for you, the disciples blurted after they found him. And what did the people want? Why were they looking? They weren't looking for Jesus to hear him preach. You know, the people are looking for you. Come teach us again. Nope. They gathered at the house to be healed. They wanted physical healing, which is totally understandable. But Jesus said, let's go somewhere else so that I may preach. That sounds kind of insensitive, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus, you can meet legitimate needs. You can do what only you can do. I mean, nobody can heal but you. And you want to leave? How did Jesus arrive at the conclusion that let's go somewhere else? Because he got up while it was still dark, went away by himself to pray. Christ got alone with God, got alone with his Father, and sort of, you might in a sense, brought it all back in line. Spent time with the Lord and came to the realization, or I should say, uh, maybe not came to the realization, but affirmed his calling that the Father called him for a preaching ministry and the healing supported that. It wasn't vice versa. And people were wanting it to be vice versa. So there's a couple principles we can glean from this that uh, relate especially to us to help us grow spiritually. As we talk about growing like Jesus grew, first of all, growing spiritually, here's the first principle. Look to God, not to others, to determine your priorities. Look to God, not to others, to determine your priorities. Jesus looked to the Father. Jesus spent time in prayer rather than letting people guide his priorities. The people wanted a healing ministry. The people wanted bread multiplied. The people wanted a king immediately to squash Rome. Jesus said, let's go somewhere else so I can preach. That was the priority of the Father. And Jesus, we're told that he got, that he mentioned this right after he spent time in prayer. And so the principle there for us is look to God, not to others, 
to determine your priorities because others will try to determine your priorities. Even after a very, very busy day of work, we see that Jesus kept first things first. After the sun had set, so while it was dark, he was healing. While it was still dark, he got up and left. Jesus was tired, and yet he made this a priority. God's priorities for us and people's expectations of us will seldom go in tandem. Think about that. What people want for you and what God wants for you are rarely going to be the same thing. How are you going to, in good conscience, have the strength to do what God wants you to do by spending time with God? Here's the second principle. Say no to some things so that you can say yes to important things. Say no to some things so that you can say yes to important things. If you think about it, Jesus' opportunities were immense. The needs that he faced demanded attention. They were legitimate needs. These weren't trumped-up needs. These were legitimate needs, desperate needs, urgent needs, more urgent than we will ever face in our life. With all the struggle and suffering that we undergo, a day in Jesus' ministry, he faced more in a day of dealing with people than many of us do in a lifetime. And yet Jesus was able to walk away. Jesus was able to say no so that he could say yes to what was more important. It wasn't just a matter of saying no, get away. It was no because I need to do something that's more important. I need to preach, which was his priority. See, we can choose a lot of good things and end up messing, missing the very best things in our lives. Here's the thing. You can do anything that you want in life, but you can't do everything you want in life. Hey, everyone. Wayne here. There's nothing that's going to make you fall in love with the book of Acts and the New Testament epistles, like traveling to the places where they occurred. Well, you can. Registration is open and it's well underway for my upcoming tour and cruise to Greece and Turkey in the footsteps of the great Apostle Paul. There's even an optional extension to the great cities of Rome and Pompeii. Going to these Bible lands will change the way you read the New Testament. I'm certain of that. Just see the video and the complete itinerary at waynestyles.com slash tours. And now, back to the podcast. Here's the thing. You can do anything that you want in life, but you can't do everything you want in life. Jesus said no to the many things he could do so that he could say yes to the few things he must do. Have you said no lately? When's the last time you said no to somebody? I had to do that just this week. I won't give you all the details, but somebody asked me to do something, and I could have done it. It would have been good for both of us, but I thought, you know what? I just, I just don't see the Lord leading me to do that. That was tough. But once it's done, there's such a great freedom. Because the decision wasn't made on, based on the fact that I didn't want to do it. Uh, it was based on the fact that I didn't think God wanted me to do it. Don't fall for the lie that states a good Christian never says no to legitimate needs. Jesus did. And he was a good Christian. <laughs> Talk about an understatement. Spending time with the Father in the Word in prayer is essential for us to grow spiritually and to get a bearing on our lives. Otherwise, we're just going to start saying yes willy-nilly to everything. And if you think about it, spending time in the Word and prayer is as essential to us spiritually as sleep and eating are to us physically. Now, we sleep and eat every day. We've never missed a day of sleeping and eating, ever, unless it was like in college when we were pulling all-nighters. And then we substituted more eating for sleeping. But we're committed to our physical, aren't we? We're pretty committed. When we have a hunger, when there is a vacuum in us that is hunger, we take care of it fast. Our spiritual lives, they're a lot more subtle 
but they're just as needy. And time in the Word, time in prayer, time with the Father, like Jesus modeled, is the key to growing spiritually. Peter used a similar illustration, didn't he, in his first epistle, where he said that um, long for, like, like a newborn babe longs for milk, long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you as well. This, this hit me like an arrow in the head this week. As I have been pondering, or I should, maybe I should say, as I have been pushing off something that I really sense God wanting me to do, and then in the context of preparing this, I come across this verse, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all the things will be taken, added to you. It's like, Keep first things first, Wayne, and trust me with all this other stuff. That was convicting. And I just want to pass that along, that conviction along to you. (laughs) Is there something that you know that you should be doing in your spiritual life that God has been saying for a long time? Hey, you need to do this. But you've just been saying, you know what? When such and so happens, then I'll do that. There's always another such and so. It, there's always a, a it's like a carrot on a stick, and you, you just keep sort of chasing it, and you never get it. Well, since we're in the convicting mode, I'll read a poem to you. It's pretty convicting. On the table side by side, the Holy Bible and the TV Guide. One is well-worn but cherished with pride. It's used daily to help us decide. We open the book in which we confide. No, not the Bible, the TV Guide. The word of God is seldom read, maybe a verse as we fall into bed. No time for prayer, no time for the word. The plan of salvation is so seldom heard, yet forgiveness of sins and a life that is free is found in the Bible and not on TV. Kind of fun, isn't it? According to the U.S. Census Bureau, the typical American spends an average of 4.4 hours daily on television. Almost four and a half hours. So, we got the time, but we need to have the priority. We're told that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature, favor with God and people. Jesus grew socially. Isn't that fascinating to think about that? That Jesus kept increasing in favor with people. He developed as a whole person. And if you think about it, Jesus had relationships with people on multiple levels. I count six of them. Maybe there are more, but there are at least these six. And you can sort of see it as from broad to narrow. He had uh, the multitudes. He had his disciples, meaning the believing disciples, anyone who believed in him. So the multitudes, the disciples, the 70, the 12, the three, Peter, James, and John, and then inside the three, he had John, the beloved disciple. You have all these different levels, and as you see the Jesus interacting with these levels, you see the level of his openness and intimacy really different for each of these levels. Jesus is much more intimate as the, as the levels narrow, as we should be as well. The Proverbs says, say, a man of many friends comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We don't wear our heart on a sleeve for our sleeve for everybody, but there's got to be somebody that we can fight in and talk to. And Jesus, even Jesus, had that. John Donne wrote the famous line, "No man is an island." And yet, a lot of us would like to be. You know that 54 percent of pet owners would choose their pet as a companion over another human being if. If on a desert island, more than half of us would rather have our pet than another human being. I mean, where else are you going to find unconditional love without back talk? You know, give me give me a Labrador any day. Yes, not a parrot and not a cat for sure. So why why are we such private individuals? I think we're such private individuals 
for a few reasons. One, we've trusted, we've been hurt. Moral of that story is don't trust anymore. Or it could be fear of vulnerability. If you really knew who I was like, if you really knew who I am, you wouldn't love me. And so there's, we keep a facade up that allows us to still have fellowship with one another, even though in the reality is we're not really very close. And then another reason is people are just hard to be around. I mean, some are like jerks. <laughs> Haven't seen a jerk lately? They are waiting for you on I-35. They are lined up waiting for you. <laughs> a pastor once said, you've probably heard this, ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. <laughs> or how about this phrase, to dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will sure be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> well, turn to Hebrews chapter 3, and let's look a little bit at growing socially. Just a couple of verses. Hebrews chapter 3 is where we'll first begin. I remember reading some years back the New England Pipe Cleaning Company of Watertown, Connecticut. It was digging 25 feet beneath the streets of Revere, Massachusetts, they had a 10-inch sewer line that was clogged, and so they had to dig down 25 feet to get to this sewer line and open it up. And uh, when they got down there, they found the clog, and of course it had the usual stuff that you can imagine a sewer line would have. But this three-man team also found 61 rings, vintage coins, eyeglasses, silverware, all of which they were allowed to keep. And I read that and thought, you know, that is a lot like people. If we are willing to put up with some crud, we will find some treasures. <laughs> so true. Hebrews chapter 3, look at verse 13. Just one verse. Hebrews 3.13. The author writes, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Is today still called today? Yes. Then today applies. We're to encourage one another, because if we don't encourage one another, and the context, if you look at the context of this, uh, is the danger of unbelief or the danger of believers slipping back to the old life, particularly for them it was slipping back into Judaism. But the principle works for us as well to whatever the old life is for us. Verse 12 says, Take care that you don't there be an unbelieving heart in you that falls away. And then verse 13 says, Encourage one another. So the encouraging one another is in a context of, Hey, let's keep going. Let's keep growing. Let's move forward in the Christian life. Because the alternative is that sin will harden us. Sin is deceitful. Sin will find its way to wiggle in and, and sort of gloss over the spiritual life and paint a layer after layer after layer until there's nothing there. I remember reading about the Queen Mary, the original Queen Mary boat. They were, they were um, I think they were about to, scuttle it or basically to, to to pull it out of service and so that that's exactly what it was they were they were getting ready to take it out of service because they've been in service forever and they took the smokestacks off and laid them on the pier and they just crumbled and turns out there was no metal left it was just layers and layers and layers of paint <laughs> There was nothing there. They were painting paint. <laughs> this is what sin can do in our lives. Take courage, lest you, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's this layers of lies just gets built up over and over and over, but there's no substance. And in a moment of need, all of a sudden it will crumble. It's just like the Queen Mary's smokestacks. 
Well, here's the third principle. We all need encouragement, and we all need to encourage. We all need encouragement, and we all need to encourage. I need you. You need me. We need each other in this Christian life. It's not sufficient to be all by ourselves. And by, by being alone, I'm talking about eyeballs, you know, not just video. Video's great. Video got us through COVID, or is getting us through COVID, however, wherever you want to land. Yeah. But at some point, you need eyeballs. You need a real hug. You need someone to look you in the eye and encourage you. Because that's how we're built by God, is to have fellowship that is beyond the superficial. You're in Hebrews 3, flip to Hebrews 10, and let's look at another. I got an email this week, or maybe last week, from a very disgruntled blog reader who had something negative to say about whatever it was I was writing on. And basically his bottom line is that he's done with church because, uh, you know, of all the hypocrites in it. And I had three or four really snappy comebacks, but I thought, you know what, this guy needs encouragement. He doesn't need me to grind my heel into his already. I don't need to (laughs) affirm the jerkiness that he sees in church. So I tried to be real gracious. But Hebrews 10, look down at verse 23. The author says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, the context of this is Jews under the temptation to go back into Judaism and not to assemble together as the church. But by principle, we can apply this as well. Whatever good reason that you might want to find for not assembling together, the author challenges us, don't forsake it. Don't forsake assembling together. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. We need this encouragement. We need verse 24. We need to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And I love the openness of verse 24 because it tells us, think about how to do it. Consider how to stimulate one another. How to say something in a certain way or to encourage someone. Write them a note. or I mean, think about it. Your creativity is limitless and how you can encourage someone in their walk with Christ, and not forsaking our assembling together. The word for encourage here, and in the verses that we read in chapter 3, literally means to call to one side, to call alongside, and it's always used, this is fascinating, it's always used of a calling that's intended to produce some kind of an effect on someone. It's encouragement not just to make someone feel good, but it's an encouragement for life change. It causes an effect. And notice also it says one another, not one to others. It's not a passive experience. Our assembling together is not entertainment. It is not a passive experience. It is a mutual experience. One another, not just one to others. Uh, Kathy and I went to see our daughter and son-in-law. They just moved to Tyler, Texas. And so last Sunday after church, we drove out there, spent the afternoon with them. And that night, um, they were still, you know, they're unpacking and doing stuff. And I went into Tyler to get some pizza. And the closest pizza place was this pizza slash bar. And so I walk in, and it was a sports bar, and they were watching the Cowboys game. Now, I don't know if you watched the Cowboys game last Sunday, but... It was a bit disappointing, but it hadn't gotten to the, uh, to the, to the sad conclusion yet, so there was still hope. <laughs> At least that was the idea. But I walk in, and I just hear this raucous cheering. And so, you know, I'm get, getting the pizza, and I look over in the bar area, 
and there's these total strangers, like arms around each other, looking at the screen and all cheering together and all saying, oh, no, and they're cursing the ref and, you know, and, uh, and you know, raising their glass and they got, they, had, they got beer and people right there together. And after I left, I thought, that, first of all, I thought, wow, that, that looks like a lot of fun. I, seriously, it, it looked like a ton of fun. And uh, after I left, I thought about this quote that I had read <laughs> earlier. It says this, The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. It's an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality, but it is a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. It is dem- democratic. You can tell people secrets, and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved, and so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. My question is, why have a counterfeit when you can have the real thing? Why have the counterfeit when you can have the real thing in the body of Christ? A guy went to an insane asylum one time and was shocked to see that there were only three guards watching a hundred dangerous patients. And he asked one of the guards, he says, don't you fear that these guys are going to gang up on you and, you know, kind of take over? And he says, nope, no problem. He said, lunatics never unite. don't turn there but just listen don't turn there but just listen to Acts chapter 2 verse 46 and 47 Luke writes day by day continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I probably could have read it with a little more emphasis, but notice growing with God and growing with people in this verse. I'll read it again with a little more emphasis. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. So temple and house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. You see, our relationship with God and our relationship with, other, with others is, is built into one another. It's built in together. And it happens on two different levels. In the temple, so there's the big meeting, and house to house, there's the small meeting. It happens on both levels, the big meeting and the small meeting. And it needs to happen on that level for us as well. Which brings me to the question, have you signed up for your small group yet, for your Koinonia group? Why not? I'm not asking for a real answer. (laughs) This is one of those, you know, this is one of those questions that you ponder, not that you answer. But seriously, we need it. We need both levels. And if it's not the small group, then what group is it? What group is it that you're able to get eyeball to eyeball and encourage one another, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because if we don't have both levels, we are a Queen Mary getting painted. They met on two levels, large and small, and we should do the same thing. I love this quote by Janis Joplin, the singer of yesteryear. She, <laughs> I hope it's okay to say this. She said, uh, after a big concert, She said, I've just made love to 25,000 people, and now I'm going home alone. We do that at church, don't we? I mean, metaphorically, we do. We have a very significant experience together, and then we go home alone. We need that day-by-day, house-to-house, personal basis as well. So Jesus grew in all these areas. So we've covered a lot of ground the last couple weeks. 
And I hope that something in what we've talked about has uh, stimulated you to want to grow to be more like Jesus, whether it's spiritually or socially or the other two. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus grew as a whole person, that he developed not just as a man, but as a whole person, even spiritually, which is amazing, that he grew in favor with God, that he grew intellectually. It is fascinating to think of our Lord Jesus, but he is our model. He is our model in every way, and we see that command all throughout the scriptures whether it's Deuteronomy 6, of loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, whether it's Acts chapter 2 with the church meeting on various levels, we see these, um, these challenges to grow spiritually and socially in multiple places. Please help us, God, not to be content with our current routine if our current routine omits any of these healthy avenues of growth and fullness. You have called us to be complete people, to encourage others and to be encouraged. So show us, Father. Give us the courage to take the, the, the stimulation, you might say, that your Spirit gives us in this moment to do that thing that we know we should do, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and to trust that all these other things will be added to us as well. Thank you for our Lord Jesus, for his life, for his model, for his death and resurrection, for his promised coming again for us. And we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Live the Bible. Will you commit with me this next week to grow like Jesus as a complete person? intellectually, physically, spiritually, and socially? Make learning God's Word a priority and take the time to care for your body as an act of worship. Look to God and not people to determine your priorities and say no to some things so you can say yes to the important things. Grow more like Jesus day by day, depending on the Father and looking to that glorious day when we'll finally be made perfect and see Jesus face to face. Next week, we're starting a brand new series on the life of one of my favorite people in the Bible. Well, this time it's not Jesus. It is Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph's story is the kind that ought to be made into a top-notch movie. It is that good. Well, until then, live the Bible. My friend, I hope you will read the Bible in 2024, and I'd love for us to read it together, seeing the places where it all happened. Check it out now at readingthebiblelands.com.